And it is always good to be reminded of how great God is because, let's be honest, life happens and sometimes we get distracted and we start wondering, man, when is this all going to work itself out? Uh, This is so impossibly hard. And the passage that we come to today is going to speak directly to uh, how great uh, God is. Can we pray for a moment before we start? God, we just thank you so much for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time when we're studying your word. And I pray that your word would open our eyes to see the blessings around us. God, we admit that with the distractions of life, sometimes we don't see your presence. Sometimes we don't see your blessings. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, pry them open with your word this morning as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his book titled uh, The River Out of Eden, a world-renowned atheist named Richard Dawkins, some of you guys have probably heard of him. He's pretty famous. He's written a lot of books uh, promoting atheism. Anyway, in this book, Richard Dawkins recalls a time in England when he was growing up when there was this horrible uh, bus crash which resulted in the deaths of several very young school children. And when the newspapers in London interviewed a local priest and asked this priest, uh, you know, why would God allow something this horrific, this tragic to happen? How could God let this happen? The priest said this. He said, quote, The simple answer is that we do not know why there should be a God who lets these awful things happen. But the horror of the crash to a Christian confirms the fact that we live in a world of real values, positive and negative. If the universe was just electrons, there would be no problem of evil or suffering, end quote. In other words, if all we are is an accident, then there's no purpose to life. There's no such thing as something that's really good or something that's really bad because there's no basis for those things. It would just be personal opinion at best, determining which is good, things that are good, and which things are are evil. Uh, Dawkins then proceeded to mock the words of the priest in his book, noting, quote, on the contrary, if the universe was just electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference, end quote. Now, when I read that, you know, I, I think, wow, that's, that's really cold-hearted. I think we can probably all agree uh, that it's pretty calloused. You'd, you'd have to have a pretty hardened, calloused heart to assert indifference toward several young school children dying in a tragic accident. In our previous lesson, we talked about how two people can be looking at the same evidence, whatever that might be. They can be looking at the same picture and arrive at contrary uh, conclusions about what they've seen. This is a perfect example from the real world of that very phenomenon. Now, we might be inclined to ask ourselves, how much evidence 
does it take to convince someone? How much evidence would we have to present to convince somebody like Richard Dawkins or any atheist? How much evidence would it take to persuade them to give their lives over to Christ? The answer is that sadly, sometimes... There's no such thing as too much or too little evidence because no amount of evidence will be sufficient to change their minds because what they really need is not a change of mind. What they really need is a change of heart. The heart's blocked, and so the mind doesn't care what the evidence might be. Working to change someone's mind is sometimes, therefore, just an exercise in futility, a complete an utter waste of time because their mind isn't where the foundation of their belief system is built. It's built on the heart. Now, in our previous lesson, we saw the disciples destroy the principle that, uh, that there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Ever, ever heard that? There's no such thing as a stupid question. Oh, yeah, look, look at our last passage. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, the, the disciples came up with the mother of all stupid questions, right? They, they stood by and watched Jesus heal this man who had been deaf and mute. And uh, following that, all of these people came and were with Jesus for three days, listening to Jesus teaching. And after three days, they didn't have any food. And out of his compassion at heart, Jesus says, I want to feed these people. And in response to that, the disciples say, well, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people in a desolate place like this? And you might think that already sounds stupid enough, but t- keep in mind also the fact that they've already witnessed 5,000 people being fed. So given that, you know, this was probably about a year ago. That was probably about a year ago. And then this, and they still don't know how, we could, you know, how Jesus would be able to feed all these people. Wow, it's, it's almost unbelievable that they would ask a question like that. But the problem wasn't that the evidence wasn't there. The evidence was there. They had seen what had happened. They'd seen what Jesus was capable of doing. But the problem wasn't with their minds. The problem was with their hearts. Their hard-heartedness had prevented them from, well, it hadn't prevented them from seeing the miracles of Jesus, but it had prevented them from understanding and embracing the miracles of Jesus. Now, from the beginning of Mark's book, we've seen the disciples kind of oscillating in their faith. You know what I mean by oscillating? You know, an oscillating fan goes backwards and forwards, or maybe you could liken it more to a pendulum going one way than the other than the other. Uh, you know, one moment they're, they're responding in obedience to Jesus when he says, follow me, and they drop everything and they follow him. And what a, what a great sign of faith. But in the next moment, they'll make it completely obvious that they just don't completely get it just yet. What's it going to take to get these guys to make up their minds and get off the fence. Pick a side. I wouldn't say that they're going to make a decision wholeheartedly to follow Jesus just yet, but before we're finished today, we're going to see Jesus issue a really stern rebuke to them. Now keep in mind that Jesus, the context of our passage is that Jesus has been in the region of Decapolis, a Gentile region, for three days, ministering to these Gentiles in a place where there were no interruptions, uh, no interference by the Pharisees or any other Jewish religious leaders. They wouldn't have dared go into Gentile territory to exercise their authority, but Jesus did. Jesus did. He has authority over it all. And so he's gone into Gentile territory, 
And he's been demonstrating his authority down there. And having fed the 4,000 men, in addition to the women and children who were undoubtedly present, Jesus has sent them home with a stomach full of bread and fish. And so with this context in mind, let's go ahead and continue our study in the book of Mark, starting at Mark chapter 8, verse 10. And immediately he, that is Jesus, immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And we'll stop there for a second. Now, in an ideal world, every thinker would believe and every believer would think. Unfortunately, most of the time, or at least sometimes, that's not exactly the way it works. Jesus has left Gentile territory. They've traveled back across the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish territory, to a place where Jesus is immediately confronted by these Pharisees who represent the intellectual elite. These guys are smart. They represent thinkers. They're educated backwards and forwards in the scriptures. They're fully aware of the fact that the ministry of a prophet is supposed to be validated by some sort of sign to verify, to validate. This message comes from God. So God would do something through that person. Uh, Usually they would foretell, they would prophesy of some future event, and if it came to pass, they were a true, uh, true prophet. Conversely, if it didn't come to pass, guess what? They're a false prophet. They're not coming from God if what they have predicted uh, doesn't come to pass. Now, time out for a second. I, I do want to say that I think that's something that we in our world today, especially with our TVs, have to be very, very mindful of, even today, because there are still plenty of people out there who claim to be prophets of God, who claim to be working on behalf of God, but whose predictions, they'll make predictions or prophecies that don't come to pass. Um, specifically, Benny Hinn comes to mind. Uh, he's an example of someone who would be a false prophet. A true prophet from God is 100% accurate. So, with that said, if somebody's rate of accuracy in making a prediction about the future is 99.9999999%, guess what? They're not from God. They're a false prophet. They're a fake. They're a phony. Uh, if, if you're a psychic and you're uh, batting around 25%, if you're, if you're getting about a quarter of your predictions correct, you're doing really, really, really well, by the way. Uh, and, and I've never heard of a prophet whose rate of accuracy was even close to 50%. So 99% would be completely unheard of for somebody to be able to predict just out of the blue. 100% would be impossible unless it was from God. So anybody who claims to be a prophet, but who has anything less than a perfect record in terms of their predictions, would be either a lunatic or a con man, uh, neither of which, by the way, is, uh, is worth following. 
Neither is worth following uh, unless you're into circus acts. Um, and if, if that's the case, you know, get yourself a pair of bowling shoes that are about 10 sizes too big. And uh, why not join the show? You know, you get, a, get a little red nose. You know, you can be just like them. But, you know, the, the, the big shoes and the nose, that's probably a dead giveaway that you're a circus act, right? But, you know, it's, it's really a shame that false prophets don't wear these, uh, you know, big clown shoes. Because uh, that would be a dead giveaway if they did, right? But here we have the Pharisees once again sticking their noses into, into Jesus' business, apparently intercepting him, intercepting him and the disciples as soon as they reach the shore. And they're asking for a sign, which is really kind of funny in a pathetic and, and sad way. Uh, and, and it's not like the Pharisees uh, don't know about Jesus doing signs. They don't, it's not like they've never seen Jesus heal before. Remember back in chapter 2, they're trying to catch Jesus working on the Sabbath, and so they put a man with a withered hand right in front of Jesus in the temple on the Sabbath, and Jesus heals him right in front of them. There's your sign from heaven, and here they are asking for a sign from heaven again. Not only that, but what about Jairus? The, the Pharisees knew Jairus and Jairus was a synagogue official who was, you know, uh, closely tied with the Pharisees. And he'd come to Jesus in his hour of desperation. His daughter was sick. And before Jesus can get to her, she dies. He, Jairus and, and Jesus receive word that the girl has died. And so Jesus goes and he raises her from the dead. You think Jairus kept that quiet? You think nobody noticed that she came back from the dead? Yeah. So they've got signs. The Pharisees know that Jesus has done miracles, and they've seen Jesus do miracles. They knew what he was done and what he was capable of, and here they are asking for a sign from heaven. Maybe this is the mother of all stupid questions. But notice, by the way, that they're not asking for a sign from Jesus. They don't say, give us a sign. They specifically say, a sign from heaven. Not from you, from heaven. I think that's probably pretty significant because it tells us that these guys obviously have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know who they're messing with. And Jesus' response to them, uh, to their request here, is twofold. First, it says that he sighed deeply within his spirit. And if you heard our, uh, our message last week, you'll notice a little bit of repetition here. It goes back to our previous lesson where Jesus sighed just prior to healing the man who was deaf and mute. That was a sigh of relief. I believe that this is probably a sigh of aggravation. The Greek language here is a little bit more intense than it was before. It indicates a sigh that comes from the bottom of your breast, the bottom of your heart. It's a deep-hearted sigh, probably more like a groan. Ugh, something like that. And I have a feeling... Jesus isn't being like Mr. Peaceful, uh, you know, gentle and peaceful here. I have a feeling, you know, you can't tell in the text, but I, I just have a feeling that Jesus is getting aggravated. He's let out this deep sigh. He's getting aggravated, and he probably raises his voice here. Um, that's just my guess. He says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Time out, again. This is a little bit confusing. 
that Jesus would say that this generation isn't going to receive any signs. I mean, we know that Jesus isn't done providing signs and wonders. In fact, we're just a few verses away. We'll, we'll cover it in our next uh, study of Mark. Uh, we're just a few verses away from seeing Jesus heal a blind man in Bethsaida, which is going to happen within the parameters of time that this generation exists, right? So what does Jesus mean when he says that no sign will be given to this generation? I think that's, uh, that's a pretty legitimate question because it seems like a contradiction. What we need to understand is that the Greek word that gets translated as generation can be translated in a variety of ways. Uh, one of those ways is to translate it generation. Duh! Um, but you can also translate it as nation or tribe. Uh, basically, it refers to a large, very specific group of people. So either Jesus was referring to the Pharisees here, or he's referring to the region of Dalmanutha. Either way, he's not referring to the entire generation of Israel that was living at the time. Now, I'm inclined to, I'm inclined to think that Jesus was probably referring to the Pharisees because of some of the words that Matthew records in his same account of this, uh, of this same passage or this same incident, um, this confrontation, which are words that Mark leaves out for whatever reason. Uh, in, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That's from Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. By the way, back to the issue of false prophets. If you look carefully at the situation of Jonah, you know that Jonah, by by the end of the book, by the end of the story, he's really, really upset. He's bitter. He's not happy at all. Why? Because he had said back in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That was his message. In 40 days, God's wrath is going to come down on Nineveh. And that was his message. And what happened? The city repented, and God was merciful. Jonah's prediction, his prophecy, therefore, wasn't fulfilled, which rendered him ineligible as a prophet in the future. God would not prophesy again through him. Because 100% accuracy is the standard of a prophet of God, and not a penny less. Now, back to our situation with Jesus and the Pharisees, this confrontation, we see that the only sign that this group of people uh, will receive, this generation, this tribe, this nation, whatever you want to call it, the only thing that they will get, as far as signs go, is the sign of Jonah, that is the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I will spend three days and three nights in the earth, and then I will come out. Now, of course, we know that the resurrection is like the greatest sign of all, and yet it doesn't convince them. It's not going to convince them. But that was the greatest sign possible. If they wanted a sign, if they truly wanted a sign, and if they were going to be convinced by anything, that would do it. But it doesn't. That's what we know. The fact is that these guys represented the intellectual and spiritual elite of Israel, right? These guys weren't dummies, but they wouldn't be 
convinced or persuaded on an intellectual level, not even by the greatest sign imaginable. The smartest people aren't going to be persuaded by the greatest sign. Why? Because the issue isn't with their minds. Their minds were sharp. Their hearts, on the other hand, were cold and far away from God. This isn't just a case of people who don't believe. This is a case of people who won't believe. No matter what the evidence is, no matter what, they're not going to believe. Now, honest skeptics, somebody who, who is sincerely seeking answers, they'll have their questions answered and they will accept those answers and they will move forward in their faith. But a lot of skeptics out there aren't that honest. Um, a fake will hide behind this mask of skepticism, but no answers will satisfy them. They'll receive an answer to one question that they have. You know, something that'll seem like a contradiction in the Bible, like the one that we just, we just dealt with. Uh, and they'll say, well, okay, well, let me move on to something else. Let me move on to something else, and something else, and something else, and something else. And no answer is ultimately going to move them forward in their faith journey. They're not going to get there. They're not even really going to take one step forward. Why? Because the reason they've put on this mask of skepticism is to barricade themselves off from God. A real skeptic, by the way, a real skeptic will become skeptical of their skepticism. And once you reach that point, man, you are off the fence one way or the other. You can't stay there and realize, hey, I'm I'm not skeptical about my skepticism. You'll go one way or the other, right? Anyway, the Pharisees, the reason that they've done this is that they want to prove that Jesus is a fake. They want to prove that he's an evil imposter. And remember that they accused him, back toward the beginning of our book, uh, they accused him of working on behalf of demonic forces. Uh, But Jesus has authoritatively denied the request that the Pharisees have presented for a sign from heaven. And what he's done is he's really turned the tables on them. They wanted to prove that he was wicked, but he's proved that they were wicked. He's answered in a way that exposes the motivation of their request. It's because their wicked motives have done this, that they are undeserving of receiving any type of sign. And this part of our passage ends with one, one simple line. Mark chapter 8, verse 13. Leaving them, leaving the Pharisees, leaving Dalmanutha, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So the region of Dalmanutha apparently uh, wasn't going to be a region that Jesus would be ministering in. It wasn't a place where he'd be spending a significant amount of time because of the presence of these Jewish religious leaders. See, there comes a point when you're trying to convince somebody, when you're arguing with people, and I don't mean in a confrontational way necessarily, an argument doesn't have to be confrontational, um, but when you're arguing with people, there comes a point uh, where the person just refuses to believe, and so it becomes really an exercise in futility. And that's not saying that we should cut ties with somebody who's like that altogether or entirely, not by any means, but it goes back to the parable of the sower that Jesus gave us in the third chapter of Mark. You have to give a seed time and opportunity to get firmly rooted in the soil. Remember the parable. The man sows the seed. The man goes to bed. The man wakes up one day and there's a sprout coming out of the ground. How did it happen? He doesn't know because he didn't do it. He didn't cause the sprout to come up 
It just happened. He didn't make it happen. All he did was plant the seed. And that was one of our lessons back in chapter 3. And with that said, Jesus isn't wasting any more time here. So he and the disciples head back out on the Sea of Galilee. So we pick it up in verse 14, verses 14 to 16. And they had forgotten, the disciples that is, they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Not oaf, loaf. They did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Let's go ahead and stop there. Do you sense that there might be a little bit of disbelief still in their hearts, lingering in the hearts of the disciples? Maybe a little bit of bitterness lingering in their hearts? You know, you you see, unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, the disciples didn't necessarily represent the smartest and the sharpest people you'll ever encounter. Uh, Some of them were. Some of them were really intelligent. Some of them weren't. Some of them were educated. Some of them weren't. Uh, They were just a blended group of people. They they appear to be just kind of random from all walks of life, a lot like the church, if you think about it. Just coming from all walks of life. Now, as I mentioned before, these, these guys have oscillated in their faith. They've gone backwards and forwards, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful. They go from leaving everything behind and following Jesus to seeing Jesus as their equal and feeling hard-hearted toward him when he proves that he's not their equal, he's their superior. They're back and forth with their faith, but really they're, they're not so much unlike us sometimes. They show signs of having faith that's on fire, and in the next scene, their faith is as cold as a slushy. You know, you know what happens when you drink a, a slushy really fast? You, you get brain freeze, right? And the disciples are having a little bit of a brain freeze here, um, but, but it's maybe of a, of a different kind. Uh, and so as they're out on the waters of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples suddenly realize that all they have is one loaf of bread. See, in the middle of this confrontation with the Pharisees, it seemed to happen really fast here. Uh, they apparently forgot to pack enough food uh, on the boat to feed all of them. Uh, and so just one loaf of bread is on the boat with them. What's really going on here? What's, what's really happening? It appears to be possible, maybe likely, that the disciples are, are testing Jesus. One loaf on the boat with Jesus we know, would be more than enough. It should be more than enough, given the way that we've seen Jesus multiply bread and fish before. But either they aren't quite convinced of Jesus' power and authority yet, or they just aren't thinking things all the way through, and the idea of Jesus multiplying the bread hasn't even crossed their mind. It's like somewhere out there, and you know they're down here, and they're totally missing it, one way or the other. Whatever the case, Jesus rebukes them, saying, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the response of the disciples, they think he's talking about real leaven. Oh, the, 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 man, I didn't know the Pharisees had their own special type of leaven. And Herod, he's got a leaven that's unique to himself. They're talking about bread. They start talking about bread with one another and the fact that they don't have any. And apparently they thought that Jesus was rebuking them for forgetting bread. You see, the Pharisees 
were a bunch of thinkers who didn't believe. And Mark is giving us a contrast here of believers who aren't thinking. Believers who don't think and thinkers who don't believe. Now, the disciples might not yet be strong enough in their faith to go out into the world and spread the gospel message, but they are following Jesus. They're sticking by his side. None of them have gone back to their former jobs or or occupations or whatever it is that they were doing before. None of them have left his side. So there is a bit of faith in them. They are staying with him faithfully, and it's been uh, over a year now that they've been with him. So obviously, we, we know that Jesus is not rebuking them uh, for just not having bread. He's rebuking them for not thinking things all the way through. And it's tragic that there are a lot of believers out there, actually, who would say that thinking demonstrates a lack of faith. Anybody ever heard anybody insinuate that at all? You ever heard that? That thinking things through, trying to look for answers, questioning the Bible, questioning God, that just shows a lack of faith, so you shouldn't do it. Uh, I was present at a church um, event in North Carolina several years ago um, while I was still in seminary, and a young boy who was there, he was maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years old, uh, he asked the pastor to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, yeah, I, I, I'll admit that's a, a pretty complicated thing to, uh, to explain to an eight or nine-year-old, but the response of the pastor was to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we can't understand, but we just have to accept it by faith. We can't understand it, you just gotta, gotta put faith in it, as if faith is necessarily blind. No, faith is not necessarily blind. There is such a thing as blind faith, but faith really just means to believe. Biblically, that's what it means. So how do you get to the point of believing? It doesn't matter. You think things through, great. If you don't need to think things through, great. Sure, we want to have faith, but that doesn't mean that you just believe something blindly. Uh, and, And, you know, that's the type of answer that I would have received at the church that I grew up in. And it was answers like that that kept me pretty apprehensive, at best, about Christianity until I was about 20 years old. Now, when I came to Christ at 20 years old, did I have everything figured out by that point? No way. Not by a long shot. I'm still figuring stuff out. But what I saw when I came to Christ, I saw a small amount of truth. And because my heart longed for more of that truth... Finding just a small amount of truth was sufficient to convince me that there was a larger truth behind that. Now, God does want us to think. He never asks for us or commands us or instructs us or expects us to be a bunch of mindless robots. He wants us, maybe he even really expects us, to wrestle with issues and think them all the way through. Think things like the doctrine of the Trinity all the way through. Think the problem of evil all the way through. See, you can't love God with all of your mind, which we are explicitly commanded to do, by turning your mind on autopilot and coasting and refusing to engage your mind, refusing to think. Because when you refuse to think, you refuse to understand. We're going to come back to that here in a moment. But for now, we need to see that Jesus rebuked the disciples. He wants them to understand. And he's given them a lot to think about by warning them against two things here. 
First of all, he warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees, and secondly, he rebukes them, warning them about the leaven of Herod. Now, what are these two things actually referring to? Well, first we need to understand that leaven is really just a small ingredient when you're making bread. You don't put a whole bunch in. You don't, you don't fill the bowl full of leaven and put a little bit of flour in. Boy, you're in trouble if you do that. You might have a house full of bread, literally. Um, you only put a very small amount in, and it spreads throughout the dough. So what was the leaven of the Pharisees? The Pharisees had witnessed several miracles, and yet they refused to believe Instead, they continued asking for more signs. What would they need signs for when the evidence has been presented to them right in front of them, clearly and unequivocally? Jesus is warning his disciples about allowing this type of attitude, this type of worldview, this type of mindset to set in where nothing will convince them. Nothing will get them to respond in faith because they've allowed themselves to become spiritually blind. The spiritual blindness of the Pharisees led them to believe that God was a God of checklists, that he wanted checklists. He wanted this done and that done, doing this and doing that by outward performance, by looking like you're doing the things that God wants you to do. For them, motivation, attitude, and other issues which pertain to the condition of the heart were secondary at best, and at worst, they were just completely overlooked. And Jesus responds to this mentality by pointing out that it produces actors, pretenders, hypocrites, nothing more, nothing less. Now, if you think that God is pleased by you doing the right thing in the right way at the right time, you're missing out on what it truly means to live by grace. You're missing it. You're missing it, and you're keeping yourself spiritually blinded because you don't see the need to change. Because according to your checklist, you're doing all these things. Why would I buy a ticket from Las Vegas to Seattle when I'm already here? I don't need to buy a ticket from Las Vegas to Seattle because I'm already in Seattle. Yeah, Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not there yet. Throw out the checklist. So he's warning his disciples and warning us a little bit that this even a little bit of this type of mentality will prevent us from seeing clearly through spiritual eyes. What's the leaven of Herod? Well, Herod was really different from the Pharisees in a lot of ways. But in some ways, he was also very similar in the fact that he was very concerned about the way he was perceived. He was very concerned about what other people thought about him. The teachings of of John the Baptist. Remember, he had John the Baptist imprisoned, and he would go down and talk with John the Baptist. He spent time with John the Baptist because he loved to hear John the Baptist talk about spiritual things. But his desire for accolades and the approval of people prevented him from going any further. So when a person is more interested in what people think than in what God thinks, Spiritual blindness ensues. Similar to the Pharisees, but at the same time, different. The warning is against spiritual blindness, both cases. But Jesus is letting the disciples know that there's more than one road that leads to the same destination. Both of them lead to spiritual blindness. That's why they're sitting there talking about bread. See, as we've seen, the disciples are, are, are perplexed. They, they totally missed what Jesus was saying. They think that Jesus is, is referring to bread. 
Look at what happens next. Mark chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 17. And when I put A up there, that means like the first half, maybe the first part of the verse. Mark chapter 17, or chapter 8, verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? What exactly is Jesus aware of? He's aware of their confusion. He's aware of the fact that they totally missed the boat. They totally missed what he was saying. He's aware of the fact that it was just something that flew right over their heads. And so he calls them out on it, asking them, why are you talking about the fact that you have no bread? Why is he pointing that out to them? Well, first of all, because they do have bread. Mark's been really careful to already tell us that there was a loaf of bread on the boat. The reality is, and this is a harsh one, the reality is that sometimes a blessing can be sitting right in front of us. It can be right next to us. We can see it happen, but we don't even see it happen. We don't understand it because we're not seeing it through spiritual eyes. Why? Who knows? You know, maybe it's because uh, we were expecting something different. Maybe we were expecting something more than what we, what we got. Maybe, maybe it's because we didn't really believe that God would answer that prayer. Maybe we didn't really believe that he would provide for our needs. And so Jesus follows this up, this rebuke, with more rebuke. A series of six questions he asks them. Starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 17b, that is the second part of verse 17 to 21. He says, Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full, or how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you still not understand? Do you not yet understand? Through these questions, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us how to shake off spiritual apathy. Really, this is a little bit of a checklist itself. Uh, when, when, you're, when you're spiritually blind, when you're not seeing the blessings of God, the presence of God, when you're not experiencing Him on a day-by-day basis and seeing things through spiritual eyes, this is kind of a little bit of a checklist for diagnostic purposes, we might say. Jesus might sound a little bit harsh here, but think about it. We've seen Jesus from the beginning of this, of this study. We've seen Jesus time after time after time acting out of what? What was his motivation? Why did he feed the people? Compassion. Compassion was always his motivation for doing things. And honestly, this is no different. These guys need a wake-up call, but they keep hitting the proverbial snooze button and going back to sleep. And it's out of his compassion that Jesus is trying to get them to open 
their eyes. Imagine that you have a really great opportunity to go out and do something, something that's going to be really rewarding for you, and you've been looking forward to it, and you know that you want it so bad, and yet in the morning you, you, you just keep hitting the snooze button and going back to sleep, and you're going to miss it. So somebody comes in, your wife, your mom, whoever, they come in and they, they put a little cold water on your face. It's compassionate. It's what you need to experience what you're missing. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So first of all, going through these questions, he asks, do you not yet see or understand? In other words, the first thing is is recognition. The first thing you need to have is some recognition. You need to be aware of the fact that you're not spiritually seeing or understanding because this is where it all starts. This is, this is part of just recognizing and admitting. You're not seeing it. It starts with opening your heart and engaging your mind. Read and analyze the scriptures. Meditate on them. Let them soak in and keep doing it until you're seeing the world through spiritual eyes. This question pertains to the person's mind. Do you not see or understand? We understand up here. If you're still not getting it, move on to the next question. Question number two, do you have a hardened heart? In other words, if your mind isn't getting it, if you're not wrapping your mind around it intellectually, you'd better check your heart. If the problem isn't in your mind, there's a good chance that it's in your heart. The reality is that when there is this disconnect between the mind and the heart, in other words, when you grasp something on an intellectual level, but you have not yet changed your heart, your actions. Maybe it's because you don't really believe it. Or maybe you just don't want to believe it. You you grasp it intellectually, but you're not going to embrace it. You're going to stubbornly stand against it. A few years back, Christina and I uh, knew a woman who was an atheist when we met her. And we spent a lot of time getting to know her, trying to minister to her, trying to convince her. And finally, I I sent her um, this video online um, about intelligent design, proving that, you know, everything came from God, basically. Uh, Scientifically, she she had a very scientific mind. And when she watched this video, she had this epiphany, "Uh uh-oh, God's for reals. Because the evidence is very clear. There's no other way. So there really is a God. And for years... And years, Christina and I watched as this woman didn't even wrestle with sin. She didn't even struggle against it. She refused to repent of it. And she started, she continued to embrace these things that were really, really, really depraved. You see, there was, there was this disconnect. It wasn't that her mind didn't get it. It was that her heart was barricaded against God. And so her actions weren't Changed. Her mind got it. Her heart refused to change its course. See, a barricaded heart will always result in a lack of response. But if if you walk away from here not knowing anything else, know this. Jesus wants your heart. He wants your heart. He's passionate about your heart. He died for your heart. Third and fourth questions are, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Now, this is something that we, we've seen Jesus repeat quite a bit. This is something that he said 
a lot, but it was always asking the person to do the same thing, directing the person the same way. Look and listen beyond the surface of what you see and what you hear. For example, when Jesus healed people, it wasn't to say, hey, I want you to walk again. It was to say, I have the authority and the power to restore you physically and spiritually. When he multiplied the bread and the fish for the 5,000 and for the 4,000, it wasn't so that uh, you know, people would be thinking, wow, Jesus is a way to, he's easier than McDonald's. You know, that, that's, that wasn't the purpose. It was to show us that Jesus cares for us, that he's compassionate about us, and that he can provide for us like nobody else can. When Jesus healed the deaf and mute man, it wasn't so everyone would say, wow, what a, what a great guy Jesus is. You know, he's, he's really nice. That was a nice act. When Jesus healed this boy of HIV, it wasn't to say, oh, this boy doesn't deserve to have HIV. This boy, you know, d- deserves a healthy life. It was to say, I am the healer. Follow me. See, you can look and hear these, and look at and hear these things on the surface and go no deeper and just think that that's just what it is. Whatever it is on the surface, that's just what it is. But Jesus is saying, when he says these questions, when he asks these questions, look deeper, look beyond the physical. What is the real message behind what I'm saying here, what I'm doing here? Fifth, Jesus says, don't you remember? And he reminds them of how he had multiplied bread, which they happen to have. And yet they're talking about how they have no bread. See, sometimes we can get so caught up in the present that we don't recognize a blessing as a blessing until it's long behind us. We see it in the rearview mirror. Jesus is telling us to remember, to go back through what we've experienced, through what we've seen, through what we know, and remember the things that he's done. Remember the ways that he's provided. Remember the ways that he's ministered to you and led you and provided for you and cared for you and loved you in the past. And looking in the rearview mirror and seeing things clearly like that, remembering what Jesus has done, how could you think? that he's taken care of you in the past and he's led you up to this point and he's just dropped you off. No, of course he hasn't. He's still there. So he says, remember. Finally, Jesus asks the sixth question. Do you not yet understand? Really, guys? Going through this checklist, going through this diagnostic list. Are you there yet? Are your spiritual eyes starting to get a little blurry, a little hazy, seeing things a little bit? See, if if we've missed seeing God working in our lives right now, every day, and you've gone through these questions, you'll figure out how to open your spiritual eyes and see the blessings of God all around you. If the disciples had thought their situation through, if they'd really thought about it, really put their minds to task here, they would have realized the same truth that Jesus wants us to know. That he's all we need. He's all we need. God wants us to be a people who think. Because, make no mistake about it, 
something will always be filling your mind. There's always something going on upstairs, and it's either good or it's bad. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be a thinking people. I want you to understand. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. We got it up here? The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. You've got two options there. Set your mind on A or set your mind on B. Set your mind on the spirit or set your mind on the flesh. What is going through your mind? He wants us to be a thinking people. He wants us to wrestle with issues. He'll lead us to the right conclusions. He'll he'll lead us toward him. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He's making us more and more like Jesus. See, the disciples didn't bring the one loaf that they had to Jesus to multiply. And so they went hungry. Likewise, sometimes the reason that we don't receive or see or perceive the blessings of God is because we don't bring to him everything that we have. So may we never allow traditions and checklists, that's the leaven of the Pharisees, or a desire to please people more than a desire to please God, that's the leaven of Herod. May we never let those things prevent us from seeing or experiencing God working within us and around us and through us. Let's pray. God, we know that there are some really tough circumstances that a lot of us are going through today. And Lord, you've seen the weight that it has been on my heart this past week. And so God, I just ask that you would open our spiritual eyes, open them wide, God, to see you working. We know that we don't always understand, and that's why we want to be putting our minds to work, to understand, God, to understand you, to understand what you're doing, to see you. We love you, God. Thank you for caring about us enough to basically beg your disciples to open their spiritual eyes. May we see the world around us clearly through spiritual eyes because your Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us. Give us a hunger for you, God, a hunger to see you and experience you in our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.